Welcome to Middle East Matters, a new podcast from the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. My name is Tarek Massoud. I'm a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and the faculty director of the Middle East Initiative. In this podcast, we'll bring you conversations with scholars, newsmakers, and artists from one of the world's most exciting and dynamic regions, the Middle East. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please be sure to subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular streaming services. You can also find our episodes on our website at belfercenter.org MEI. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Middle East underscore HKS. Welcome, everybody, to this uh, sixth installment in the Harvard Kennedy School American University in Cairo series of conversations with Arab thought leaders on the 2020 U.S. election and America's changing role in the Middle East. I'm going to turn this over to my co-pilot, Karim Haggag, to introduce our distinguished guest for today. But let me just remind everybody what it is we are doing here. Each week, we've been meeting with leading Arabs from the worlds of policy, practice, and ideas to explore their perceptions of the current season of politics in the United States and to get their sense of where they think the United States, the world's sole superpower, is heading and particularly what all of this means for the Middle East. So far in this series, we've interviewed some really uh, interesting uh, and extraordinary people, including Iraqi uh, Prime Minister Ayyad Alawi, the Emirati intellectual Abdel Khaliq Abdullah, the uh, Iraqi Emirati journalist uh, Mina al Urebi. And these conversations will soon be available on our website to, and on podcast streaming services. We also have one more conversation. This is the penultimate conversation before we break for the winter. Um, one more conversation next week with the Saudi uh, editor of the Al Arabiya English, uh, Muhammad Al Yahya. And we hope that you'll uh, join us uh, for that. Let me now turn it over to my co-pilot in this endeavor, Karim Haggag of the American University in Cairo School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Karim. Thank you, Tarek. And uh, thank you everyone for joining us for this afternoon's discussion. So it, it's truly my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest uh, this afternoon. Uh, Raghad Adirham is one of the most renowned and respected names in Arab journalism. Mrs. Dirham is currently a columnist for the National and Al Nahar Al Arabi newspapers. Throughout her long and distinguished career, she served as the columnist, senior diplomatic correspondent, and New York bureau chief for the London based Al Hayat for 28 years. For those of you familiar with Arab journalism, Al Hayat has been a, one of the leading uh, journalistic platforms for uh, regional and international news uh, in the Arab world. And in that capacity, Raghada has conducted numerous high profile interviews with some of the leading international political figures in the United States, in the Arab world, and on the international stage. Raghada Dirham has been a frequent contributor to the New York Times, 
The Washington Post, Al Jumhuriya, The Huffington Post, Arab News, Al Arabiya English, and Newsweek, among many other global and regional news outlets. A prolific commentator on global politics, she is a member of several of the leading foreign policy think tanks and associations, including the Council on Foreign Relations, the Foreign Policy Association, the International Media Council of the World Economic Forum, and the Advisory Committee of the International Women's Media Foundation. Rada Durgham is currently the executive chairman of the Beirut Institute, which she founded in 2010 as an independent nonpartisan think tank, and which has since then become a leading Arab and global forum addressing issues of governance, innovation, women, youth empowerment, and education in the Arab world. Mrs. Dirham was named one of the 100 most powerful Arab women in 2011, and in 2016 and 2017, she was named Arab Woman of the Year for her achievements in journalism. In 2018, she was named one of the 50 most influential women in the Arab world. And if I could just add a personal note uh, to this introduction, uh, as a young Egyptian diplomat, I remember myself and for many of my colleagues, we looked to Raghada's column in Al Hayat as a source of deep insight and perspective on regional politics uh, and global affairs. So it's really a pleasure to have uh, you with us uh, today, uh, Raghada. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a very generous introduction. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Great. So let's Thank get you, let's get started with questions. So so the the first question I guess uh, I'll ask is, you know, it seems like we have a clear winner in this election. It's not one hundred percent certain, but it looks like it's going to be uh, a President Joe Biden, inshallah, to use his favorite word. Um, how are people in the Arab world processing this development and the broader prospect of a uh, Biden administration? Uh, thank you very much, Tariq and Karim, uh, for hosting me. I look forward to this conversation, and I will start by uh, absolutely objecting to a one view from the Arab world. I think in the Arab region, we have multiple points of views uh, normally on many issues, in particular about this issue of the elections of the United States president. Uh, yes, there are people who are feeling that uh, Mr. Donald Trump was exhausting and we need to get something else going uh, for some sort of a normality, if you will. But no, the majority of the Arab uh, uh, policymakers have found in uh, President Trump a relief because President Barack Obama had switched uh, in favor of Iran for many years uh, during his presidency and, uh, and he switched away from the traditional alliances with Arab uh, countries such as Egypt, I must say, not only with uh, Arab Gulf states. So there is a little bit of fear uh, that a Biden presidency might bring back an Obama era. Uh, by that, uh, I mean the Obama era embraced uh, uh, Iran in the name of accomplishing the JCPOA, which of course, you know, this is the nuclear deal that was made with Iran. And in fact, there are people who feel that President Obama turned a blind eye on Syria in a very uh, unfortunate way in order to preserve the Iranian interest in the JCPOA. So some in this region are afraid that 
the Biden administration will bring back the Obama, um, uh, if you will, uh, the reset. Because if, uh, when Donald Trump came to power, he did the reset away from what President Obama did. Now there is fear that maybe now a Biden presidency will go back to what Obama uh, had uh, already put in place. Having said all that, uh, there are others who are being uh, dealing with this in a very sober way. And they're saying, well, take a look at the facts because the preoccupation of most of the Arab region is about what policy will the United States pursue towards Iran. So uh, there is now uh, an, an assessment by some that uh, there isn't going to be an automatic uh, return to the JCPOA only because the team of uh, Joe Biden had already spoken of the necessity of Iran to comply and the necessity to uh, take a look at its regional behavior and uh, above all the issue of uh, the missiles that uh, is quite, quite controversial, the Iranian missiles which have been uh, pointed out by the Trump administration. So there may be uh, uh, some people who think that it's going to be a quick embrace of the JCPOA, come back with the Europeans, they are going to be very happy about that, join forces, go back, and you know, this is a quick success of foreign policy for the Biden administration. That's one view. But the other view says, well, hold on, because this is not as easy as it looks. It's going to be much more complicated. It, they have to square, the Biden team will have to square uh, in the, uh, between, between what is required, that they have said is required of Iran, and how much can they walk the walk and do the talk and as far as going back to the JCPO with the Europeans. And I'll tell you something what I want to discuss later because I don't want to go too long. Rus some Russians are rather weary about uh, what the Biden administration will do with Iran. I'll say that, please bring this back when we discuss this further. Secondly, uh, I, I would, would point to you that the Trump administration, again, I'd like to discuss this a little bit later, may be creating some facts on the ground from now to January 20th that might make it very difficult for a Biden presidency to go ahead and jump to rescue Iran back uh, from the sanctions. I'll, I'll, I'll explain all of that later, but I think I should stop now to allow you to uh, tell me what you want me. Well, to no, this is great, Rahda, and you shouldn't feel the need to to, to uh, render your comments uh, sound bites. But I do have a follow up on this because you started off by chiding us for asking you for a single Arab view. You said there's a variety of views. And then the best you could come up with is that the Arab view ranges from extreme horror to mild horror. So can you tell me if there is a segment of the Arab uh, elite or mass opinion that is actually happy about this change in American politics? Uh, but let's talk about governments first. I think governments like the Syrian government uh, allied with Iran would be rather happy to get rid of the Trump pressures whether it is through the Caesar Act, Magnitsky Act, or et cetera, because what's going on here is the issue of sanctions. 
So you would have uh, Syrians, uh, particularly in the government, saying, you know, good riddance uh, that the Trump administration will go. You would have in Lebanon, the allies of Iran, Hezbollah, and the supporters of Hezbollah who would also say good riddance, let's just get rid of the Trump administration because that would mean the release from their point of view of sanctions on uh, not only Hezbollah, but also their allies in Lebanon. So therefore the allies of Hezbollah in Lebanon might even entertain the idea that the Biden presidency would somehow drop these sanctions, which for me, it's foolish. But again, I'll let you ask me about that later. Uh, and, 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 uh, in terms of the public, the Arab public, look, I mean, the Arab public in general, again, this is not fair for me to, to tell you what the Arab public feels. I, I, I did not do any survey. But in general, uh, they have welcomed the policies of Donald Trump, again, in Egypt, because if you remember during the Obama presidency with the Biden vice presidency with uh, Hillary Clinton, if you remember, there was an attempt, there was an, uh, at least a silent blessing of the attempt of the Muslim Brotherhood to take over in Egypt, uh, in uh, Tunisia. And you would have, and you are an Egyptian, you know better than me, but you would have many Egyptians saying, well, we don't want that. You have other Egyptians who do want the Muslim Brotherhood to take over in, uh, the, 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 uh, in, in, in Egypt, but you have at least half of you in Egypt, you, you don't want that. So that half is not going to be very happy uh, with a, a fear of the Biden presidency uh, resetting what was reset in terms of the U.S. relations with Egypt. So uh, in uh, Tunisia, I would argue the same, that they, uh, at least half the population, does not want uh, the Muslim Brotherhood to rule. And you could feel that uh, on, not only on the streets, in the parliament, you, if you follow what's happening in Tunisia, you will uh, feel it. You will not only, and you will hear it. Uh, so uh, then you have uh, the big question of, Turkey, again, we'll get back to that, but Turkey being sort of uh, the supporter uh, of the rise of Muslim Brotherhood in the Arab region, expansionist uh, Turkey in other uh, areas, uh, not only in the Arab region, but as you know, uh, in other places uh, from Nagorno-Karabakh from, from Nagorno to, 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 to the Cyprus issue, to the contention with Greece. So, you, you know, Again, I, am being, I, I did chide you and I will chide you again. There is no one Arab point of view. We have, and that's very healthy that we have completely different points of views across the board. But in general, I would argue that there is fear of uh, a return of, uh, at least the impression would be that Iran will feel strengthened again and powerful again to the extent that it will uh, sort of uh, it's, it will implement its project in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen, and so for many Arabs, this is an encroachment on the Arab geography that they do not welcome. They many most Arabs absolutely admit as they should that Iran is a great country that it is entitled to its greatness within its own borders. But this notion that it is entitled to have paramilitary forces in other countries that report to Tehran, uh, this notion is really, is really about an absolute erosion of the, the very principle of sovereignty. 
So, you know, it is not uh, uh, just an emotional thing. It's not about, oh, we don't want Iran, oh, we're afraid of the Ottoman return of Rajab uh, uh, Tayyip Erdogan. It is re real politique. We're not talking only about the encroachment of ideology. We're talking about felt matters, policies being implemented at the expense, at the expense of sovereignty in several Arab countries, including Lebanon, including Iraq, including Syria, and including Yemen. So just to, to wrap a ribbon around this, so would you object to me framing your comment as such, the only Arabs who are happy about a, a Biden victory are those who are either in cahoots with Iran or in cahoots with the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah, yeah, but they're both, you know, I mean, they both feel... Uh, no, those are not, not, for example, Arabs who care about, uh, you know, democratizing their countries or Arabs who might have taken issue with President Trump's statements about Islam. That, that you don't think, none of that figures. Well, I think you summarized what I wanted to say perfectly. Right. Yeah. Karim. Yeah. So, Ravida, if, if it is uh, the reality that, that the prevailing perception in the region is driven by this <clears throat> anxiety, that a Biden administration would mark a return to the very problematic policies uh, undertaken by Obama. You, you would think that the Arab world, and, and here I, I will be more specific, the, the like-minded countries uh, of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, uh, the UAE, uh, that this nucleus uh, of like-minded Arab states would reflect on that period of the Obama administration draw some lessons and develop a, an approach towards uh, the future Biden administration uh, that would align with their interests and the type of regional politics that they would like to see. Um, do you think that that is happening? Is that taking place? Yeah, again, I want to remind you of what I also said earlier. I said there are those who are not as anxious towards the Biden uh, presidency because they feel that, it, that sort of falling into the arms of Iran is not going to be as easy as perceived by some. So as I said earlier, that there is a portion of uh, the, the policymakers who feel that the Biden presidency will have to take a look at what the Trump presidency has done and build on it rather than throw it in the sea. Now, there will be others who say, oh, we did the JCPOA, people in the Trump, I mean, sorry, people in the Biden team, uh, if they take office, just say, this is our baby, we're going to resurrect it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, there may be that, um, that, that, that euphoria, if you will. But when it comes right down to it, there will be more obstacles than right now obvious to anyone because of the, again, I repeat, because of the missiles and because of the behavior uh, in, on, the, on the level of uh, the regional interventions. But above all, the missiles, I must say. I don't think the United States is going to break up with Iran because the Iranians are encroaching on Arab sovereignty. I'm sorry to say that, but I'm being very realistic here. So I feel, uh, I, I, lost, I lost part of your question. I mean, the Obama, the Obama lessons, um, look, I mean, even people in, in the Obama administration felt horrible about what the Obama lessons were in Syria. I mean, after all, there was a genocide in Syria. And, you know, this 
was a situation where people turned, up, turned their site away in order to accomplish the JCPOA. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people paid a price. I should hope that this is not going to be the legacy remembered by pre of, of President Obama and that, and, and I'm not suggesting that a President Biden would do that, but I think it's going to be challenging. Um, there are some set ideas amongst the Biden team in terms of uh, how do they view certain Arab countries that no matter what reform is taking place, it doesn't matter. There has been an established past that is condemnable and they're right in certain cases, but they shouldn't really forget about what's going on in terms of, uh, of, of uh, processes of democratization. Democracy is not an easy word, not in this part of the world or anywhere else. But when you talk to you know, somebody like me, a woman from this region, I do pay attention to measures. If, uh, they put women in the middle of policy making and when they liberate women from uh, uh, where they had been and also, uh, I don't think there is an, a confidence in, unfortunately, look, I'm an American and I'm a Lebanese and I have a very hard time interpreting both worlds, you know, as an Arab, as an American to, to each other. But there is not that much trust in the drive of the United States for democracy. I mean, the invasion of Iraq uh, during the George W. Bush, Bush era, they told us it was for democracy and no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was really, for many other things, we'll talk about that. But so there is no uh, automatic uh, uh, sort of wing that says, oh, we love America for its democracy, it's bringing democracy to our part of the world. But there are others who appreciate the use of sanctions that was uh, established by President Trump in order to pressure individuals, pressure parties, pressure countries, pressure militias in order to correct some wrongs. It is, has, this has been a sort of like, okay, somebody is looking at us. Somebody is doing something rather than uh, the, the sort of, um, well, you know, the, the, the good old uh, sweet talk of the Europeans. Yeah. So just to press you on this point, Rahida, because uh, I think this I forgot is... the original point. Go ahead, press me, because I forgot what the question was. Okay, no, I, 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 I will, uh, I, I will pre press you on the same point, because I, I think this discussion about uh, the Obama's administration's policies is, is useful to dissect, g given the parallels that are being drawn between Biden and Obama. So mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that the criticism from the region towards US policies under Obama led to this estrangement uh, between uh, the administration and its partners in the region. But the counter criticism from the US side then was that, okay, well, the Arab world has no solutions to these problems. You know, what is the Arab solution to the Iran Iran's nuclear uh, program? What is the Arab solution to, to the Syrian civil war? What is the Arab solution to uh, the proliferation of pro-Iranian militias uh, throughout the Arab world? Mm -hmm. Do you feel that criticism is legitimate? Yes. And what is, what, for them, what would be uh, the Arab approach to addressing these problems under a future Biden administration? Okay, so again, that big broad word Arab is, again, I'm going to 
just object because there is no Arab approach as such. There are different countries and different approaches. Now, and first of all, the Arabs were excluded in a very predetermined way from the discussions on the uh, uh, nuclear deal with Iran. They were actually excluded in a very, in, 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 in a very malign intent quite honestly. Who did the JCPOA? The five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. There was no Arab participation in it. So it's not, you know, I mean, they, they probably are guilty of not pushing enough, but I don't know if they had pushed enough, they would, where, where would they have been? Uh, the Arab uh, uh, participation in any uh, uh, sort of input in their future is supposed to happen through the League of Arab States, which has really had not been functional. No, let's call it, it's been rather dysfunctional when it came to issues as such, such importance. There has been the GCC, of course, the Gulf Council Cooperation, and they too have suffered the break in, in, the break in the ranks, you know, between Qatar on one hand and the UAE on the other, uh, then Oman in between. So there is no coherence in the GCC, Gulf Council Cooperation either. Uh, so you do not have uh, sort of a structure, an Arab structure, because you keep saying Arab as if we have one structure, and we don't. Karim and Tariq, both of you, you know better than me, but you know, we do not have a structure. However, right now, there is a revived talk about the potential of uh, a new security structure. Of course, the Iranians offered their version of it, where Iran would have the upper hand in a security structure that will have the GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, uh, Oman, Kuwait, and Bahrain, plus Iraq and, uh, uh, and, and Iran. And that was rejected because it was about basically um, enhancing the superiority of uh, Iran and its projects. Uh, then you have the Russians who went to the Security Council with their own proposal of a security structure. I wrote a couple of weeks ago about this revival of the, the talk about a new regional security structure that uh, has been uh, spoken about in, in several different quarters. I don't know how serious it is, but it, it has notably come out after uh, there has been the, 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 uh, the peace treaties, what are, what are officially the Abrams Accords uh, and the signature of, uh, uh, of normalization basically between uh, the UAE, Bahrain and Israel and uh, Sudan and I think others are on the way. Uh, so this is it, 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 probably some say, and you could argue that they're right, uh, some say that some of the Arab Gulf states uh, went uh, in the direction of, so of, of uh, having, uh, what, what is the proper word? It's not a deal, it's called, uh, and it's not a treaty, and, and have an accord with Israel in order to, uh, to stand up, to be able to stand up to Iran and Turkey. Don't forget Turkey in the equation, because Turkey is also a menace not in, in the Arab geography, not only Iran. So uh, uh, Israel is absolutely a menace as well. So don't get me wrong. I don't think this is uh, the time to just say uh, Israel is not guilty of occupation or what it has done uh, to the Palestinians and the two-state solution. Having said all that, again, I think the Arab countries individually and collectively are acting in a different way than we know it. We, they don't go to the League of Arab States. They don't go to the GCC. 
They don't go to, uh, uh, to the traditional forums that we have known. The United Nations has also proven itself uh, pretty useless. Uh, listen, I covered the UN for about 40 years and when they stopped counting the dead in Syria, and they did literally stop counting the dead in Syria, I just gave up, packed up and left. Because again, the Security Council was another body that is not uh, reliable or to, to, to go to. So something is happening, something is going on, Karim. I don't know what it is. Yes, Arabs are guilty of not doing enough, no doubt. And yes, they are all over the place, they are not united. And no, they will never be united in the sense that you would think, um, at, at best, hopefully, ha hopefully they would be uh, like Europe, uh, you know, dependent and, and coordinated, but no, united. I, and that's why I keep saying there is no such thing as an Arab position as such. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question this time. I hope I did. Very well. Yes, so, thank you. Raghada, just to kind of follow up on this. So, you know, the Biden administration, you mentioned the uh, JCPOA. The Biden administration probably wants to get us back into the JCPOA. Your criticism was that it was engineered without... Uh, any Arab involvement, but then of course the litany of Arab ills that you just uh, uh, recited would cause one to expect that there would be no, no Arab involvement. So what's your prescription for how the Biden administration might address this issue in a way that would be viewed more favorably in terms of uh, the interests of America's Arab partners? Okay, if I were to wish to do a wishful thinking, I would want the Biden administration to start reaching out to the Arab Gulf states because it is in the region, Iran is their neighbor, and to make sure uh, they are involved in any discussion. Two, I would make sure that I do not agree with what President Obama agreed to, that is excluding on purpose the issue of uh, Iranian interventions uh, uh, outside their own borders, because that was agreed to by the five permanent members plus uh, Germany. It was a condition of Iran that if you want the nuclear, you do not speak about the regional. And they agreed. That was a very uh, uh, costly uh, Agree, that was a costly policy that we paid the price of. That's why when I argue with some of my colleagues and they say, what do we care about? We are afraid that Iran would have a nuclear weapon. And I say, I'm afraid that I will not have sovereignty in my country. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to the people of this region. And I am, I am like you, I am preoccupied with what would happen if Iran has or develops a nuclear weapon. But here I am paying the daily price for Iran's encroachment on the other, the, other, the, the Arab countries, including my own. So, I mean, I would beg that Biden team to remember uh, that uh, what, what, what the Obama administration bet on, which was, oh, they said, we are sure that uh, uh, the JCPOA will impact the behavior of uh, Iran regionally and it will change such behavior. Well, take a look, show me how, where is that? Prove it to me. To the contrary, it has been costly with a lot and a lot of lives lost. So forgive me if I insist that yes, of course, nuclear is important. But forgive me if I insist that you really need to address the regional. This is not to be excluded again because that is really a crime. 
And so a Biden administration is well advised, and I beg the Biden team to think again and do not repeat the mistake of uh, uh, the Obama administration uh, by agreeing to exclude the regional behavior from any negotiations about the JCPO or otherwise. One more thing, just because we are talking about exclusion. The funny part, uh, I was, I was uh, yesterday doing from this very place here, I was doing an e-policy circle uh, for Beirut Institute Summit uh, that I do every Wednesday. And my uh, Russian guest, uh, Fyodor Lokyanov, who's close to the administration in uh, Moscow, he said something that mm, got my attention. He said they were, he said uh, he was he was expecting that, uh, or he was worried, maybe he didn't say the word worried, but he, he, he expected is that the Biden team and uh, the Iranians will go at it together to try to figure out what, what, how best to get back uh, on that bilateral relationship in a way that also excludes even Russia. So I would say to the Biden team, please don't, uh, at least if you don't want to include Russia or, or, or China or the members of the Security Council. Why, why do you care if they include Russia or China? I just said that if you yeah. don't want I just said that if you don't want to include Russia or China or Germany or France or Britain, and because those were the, the people, uh, I mean, this, this, those were the countries who signed the JCPOA, at least think of the region, because we are in the region on the receiving end of, ex of, of excluding us and allowing Iran to go on. Uh, unobserved in its regional project. But Raghda, when I asked you this question, you said, if I had a magic wand, I would ask for this or I would beg for this. So you don't have a magic wand. And as uh, persuasive as I think you are, American policy is not going to be made on the basis of that. So what can the Arab countries do to convince the Biden administration that when it comes to try to resurrect a deal with Iran, they need to be at the table? Is it simply just making this kind of moral claim, we're the ones who are affected, please, 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 or is there something they can bring to the table? I think they, they have been active. I mean, ambassadors in Washington have not only putting, uh, they have not been putting all their eggs in the basket of uh, the Trump team. Uh, they've also been you know, professional and building bridges with uh, the potential Biden team. And so I think this is very important. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and what can we do? What, what do you expect that we, we can do, uh, Tarek? I mean, other than somebody like me express and beg and, and bring it to the attention of all the policymakers who are my guests every week. Uh, and, and, and I have Democrats, not only Republicans, to say, please do not dismiss this very important point. I, you know, if you don't want to speak, if you don't want to bring the Arabs to the negotiating table with you, at least do not allow the repeat of taking off the table the issue of regional behavior by Iran. This was a fundamental, huge uh, policy that cost us lives. That is my message. It's not about a wand or not, it's a, it's a policy message. It's a policy recommendation. It is really essential that we must make sure that, uh, uh, in, I mean, don't just lift sanctions and the, and the revolutionary guards will go on implementing their policies because the revolutionary guards in Iran are the ones who are executing policy. 
foreign policy of Iran. Don't, it's not President Hassan Rouhani. Uh, it's not Mohammad Jawad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran. Take a look. There is struggle there, and there's elections coming up in June 2021. And so do not rush and lose sight of what could happen if you do not pay attention. Not only do you hurt uh, people in the Arab geography, you're hurting people inside Iran. And the Democrats always you know, take pride in looking after human rights inside Iran. And I don't think they're going to dismiss that. I don't think they're going to uh, turn around and say, well, we're going to just forget about what the uh, sanctions of the Trump administration are all about, because those sanctions accuse Iran of sponsoring terrorism. So it's not going to be an easy, I, I, I have to repeat it again, lest you misunderstand me. I don't think it's going to be easy for the Biden administration to jump back into the JCPOA, no matter how much euphoria is there. Yeah. I, and so I am saying, please take a look at, at what was done wrong and what, it, what did it cause and amend it. Yeah. So, so one one. Quick question, uh, and then uh, uh, we'll want to move to a different topic. But uh, another country, obviously, that Biden's uh, presidency might result in a, a in a change toward is uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And you might remember the Democratic uh, uh, presidential debate in November of last year. Pre- now, President-elect Biden said that he would make it very clear that we're not going to send more, sell more weapons to Saudi Arabia, that we're going to make them pay the price for the, the murder of the Washington Post columnist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And he said, we're going to make them the pariah they are. He said, in fact, there's very little social redeeming value in the present government of Saudi Arabia. So do you think we're about to witness a major restructuring of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? And if so, what should the Saudi response be, do you think? All right, so um, I think that there will be a push back against Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly because President Trump, you know, he said that and and he uh, built very good relations with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Look, let me start by saying something extremely important. Jamal Khashoggi was a colleague of mine. He worked with us at Al Haya. This is, uh, I know him, I knew him for 30, 40 years. And so, and his killing is, is an atrocity and there has to be accountability. One day, one day there has to be clear accountability and it should not be shoved under any rug. So let me make that very clear, no matter what I say about Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis right now are, have been pitched by the Trump administration to go ahead and uh, take the same steps as the UAE, as Bahrain, as uh, the others in terms of turning the page with Israel. And it may happen, it may not. Uh, they say uh, the, Arab, uh, plan, the Arab peace plan is our reference. And if there is you know, a seriousness about the two-state solution, that they might. At any rate, I don't think the Biden administration is going to lose sight of Israel when it comes to this equation. So they're going to take a look at what the Abrams Accords have done in terms of Gulf relations, Arab states uh, in the Gulf relations with Israel. Israel is a domestic issue, as you know. So uh, Democrats, Republicans are not going to be just uh, all of a sudden revenge of Saudi Arabia or revenge of the UAE or what have you, uh, uh, embrace of Iran and okay, dump Israel. Uh, it's not going to happen because it's a domestic issue. 
then I wanted to say that uh, uh, in terms of what's happening inside Saudi Arabia, this is what I was referring to earlier. There has been a lot of reform. I know many people in the States can't see the issue of just uh, framing all of Saudi Arabia in the horrifying killing of Jamal Khashoggi. It's Is it just that? Is it just that, Raghada? I mean, there's the arrest of activists. I mean, there's a several female rights activists who are in prison right now. It's not just about that one dramatic event, is it? It is, it is largely about that and also more than that. I will even tell you it is about 9-11 as well. I'll go back to even 9-11 where, uh, you know, where Saudi Arabia has become the country that has been associated directly with the uh, 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 Twin Towers. So it's, it's an old story. It's not, you know, I mean, the relationship with Saudi Arabia has always been problematic. And I think it's, you know, I don't know which administration did what, but I think mostly the Republicans have been on better page with Saudi Arabia than the Democrats. I don't know. But what I'm trying to say is that think regionally, think, think strategically, geopolitically. What do we want? Do we want to lose Saudi Arabia to uh, China or Russia? We don't want that. I mean, we Americans, I think we should think all the way across the board as to what is our interest on the long run. It is not in our interest to dump Saudi Arabia. It's not in our interest to uh, lean on, uh, on, on uh, Egypt so that Turkey can create havoc either in Egypt or in Libya next door or in, in Tunisia and North Africa. I think we should really think about where, what is it where we, let's think of where we are. Despite you know, all the anger with Donald Trump, and everything that he's done in the, you know, to, to, to anger Americans. But look what he is leaving behind in these relationships. Take a look at it. If it's good for the U.S., go on with it. If it's not, revisit it, correct it. But don't be driven by just, okay, Trump did this and we're going to do the, the opposite. By the way, speaking of Trump, can I just switch a little bit to, to, to tell you some, something that has been uh, worrying a lot of policymakers and it can be happening and it's sort of more uh, sort of newsy. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of worry that the Trump administration will uh, go ahead with uh, a huge amount of sanctions uh, to cripple what Biden can do uh, in terms of the relationship with Iran. That is to say uh, that the Trump administration which, is, which has envoys in the region, including, I believe, tomorrow, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, coming to the region, with the idea of uh, imposing multiple sanctions outside the realm of the nuclear, based mostly on the issue of the uh, missiles, and, as I said, accusation of supporting terror, and uh, other matters, in order to tie the hands of uh, the Biden administration when it comes to February 1st, let's just say, not, not January 20th. So this is a policy that might really uh, leave uh, a different landscape uh, than the one we are looking at now, thinking, okay, uh, the Biden administration will just go back to the JCPOA. No, it will not. Yes, it's crippled. No, it's not. This is going to be a very interesting thing to watch. And I think that sanctions will even go as far as uh, getting to China and to Russia if they resume uh, or if they take on sending arms to Iran. 
So, you know, it's not over. The, the, uh, the Trump administration may concede, but it's going to uh, stay in power till January 20th, and there's a lot of time for them to do a lot of things. That, that, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And there are certainly some changes in the Defense Department that would suggest that Trump's got some plans uh, for the Middle East, and we'll come to those in a second. One quick thing on, on Saudi Arabia, because you, it was in your comments, but I think I stepped on it or we didn't bring it out. So would I be correct in saying that you think one of the prices that the United States is going to levy on Saudi Arabia in order to get Saudi Arabia back into our good graces is the price of normalizing with Israel. That's what I heard you say. In a way, listen, it's not a secret that the Trump administration has been very keen on making that, on hoping that that would happen anyway. Don't but know. It, for Biden, you know, in other words, that would be a condition. Biden might let Saudi Arabia back into the U.S.'s good graces in a Biden administration if Saudi Arabia comes through and signs its version of the Abraham Accords. Okay, I'm not quoting this, you know, you do this, I do that. I don't think he's going to say, I'll sell Iran down the drain and you sign up with Israel. I'm not saying that at all, uh, uh, because that would be very irresponsible of me to make that equation. But I'm saying that while you're doing, why are you doing policy? You think of these things. You do see, you do look at what has been, you know, what's, what's in front of you. You look at that, you calculate it, you, and what's geopolitics is about that. You know, take a look, you know, what's, what's, and Israel is important in this uh, uh, transition and always in American politi- politics. But what happened with the Abrams Accord is unprecedented, no? Don't you, won't you agree? This is totally new. Uh, now, who's opposed to those is Iran. What's a Biden team going to do with that? If Iran, uh, and there has been threats by the revolutionary guards against the countries who signed up with Israel by the Abrams Accords, is he, how is he going to explain himself, or how is his, it's his team going to explain itself if he looks that he has, uh, you know, in, enabled uh, the uh, revolutionary guards or the hardliners in Iran to go ahead and teach a lesson to those countries who uh, signed up with Israel. I, I just, you figure this out with me. Yeah, I, I can't figure it out. I, I, Karim has the next question. The only thing I will say is that I just love how you've chided Karim and I several times for identifying a single Arab view. And yet on this issue of the Abraham Accords, you're making it sound like there's a single Arab view and anybody who's not with it is Iran. Absolutely not true. That's not true. Absolutely not true. Let me, if you understood me this way, uh, I then- Go uh, ahead, go ahead, correct, correct me, please. No, 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 I did not. I I would give you the benefit of the doubt and I would say I misspoke, but I didn't. You hear me out exactly as I'm trying to say. Go ahead, please, please. I am telling you that on the domestic American level, I did not tell you all Arabs are all for uh, the. I I never even hinted to that. I was saying on the domestic American level, uh, Israel is important. And you were asking me about Saudi Arabia. And and would uh, would a Trump uh, administration have wanted Saudi Arabia to sign up with Israel, certainly. Is there an objection to Arab countries signing up with Israel? Certainly. 
uh, the Palestinians are above all, they are the ones who are angry more than anyone else. And they say, where are we? And then this is a complete different conversation. What happened? Why are the Palestinians where they are? Or have they been betrayed? Did they betray themselves? Is this, from my point of view, this accord, from my point of view, at least it, it did one thing, and it may be too much of a price for this one thing. The Israelis, Mr. Netanyahu had in mind to, um, uh, what is the word? Annex. To annex, thank you. To annex, whatever was left of the Palestinian land in the West Bank and in the uh, Jordan Valley, to the extent that the potential of a Palestinian state would have been erased. If he had gone ahead and annexed what he had planned to annex, enabled by the Trump plan, enabled by Jared Kushner for sure, it, we would have lost any possibility to see a Palestinian state, period. This accord put a, a, a stick in the wheel of that drive. Now, I pray that the Israelis are not lying about that, that they do not mean to just you know, pocket it and then take back uh, the, the notion of, of, uh, of, of, of finishing up the notion of a Palestinian state. I pray and I hope that a Biden administration will make sure to pressure the Israelis not to back down from this agreement arrangement that there will be no annexation and that there will be a Palestinian state. So do not please uh, Tariq, uh, suggest to me at all that I am telling you that all Arabs have supported these accords in fact, I am telling you that there's a lot of objection and a lot of suspicion, but there is a welcome by a big number. Again, don't tell me what are the Arabs thinking. Uh, look what the, the, the UAE is doing and look at the Gulf. In the, in the UAE, they are happy with what they're doing. They feel comfortable. They believe that they put that stick in the wheel of uh, annexation. And they feel that this is going to produce, from their point of view, better rights for the Palestinians than the th last 30 years of, 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 of what? I mean, where, where did we get? Uh, the poor Palestinians have been under occupation, which for me is a violation of human rights. You don't think it's a real testament, though, to the insignificance of the Arabs in the Washington calculus, that the only way that they could put a stick in the wheel of the Trump administration's, uh, uh, you know, aiding and abetting of annexation was to capitulate on a longstanding insistence on not recognizing Israel until the occupation had been resolved? Listen, uh, uh, Tarek, uh, do you want me to uh, listen to your interventions? I'm all ears. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, it is your view, and, and I accept that it's your view, but I, this I'm just asking questions. No, 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 this was not a question. This was your statement, and I accept that this is your point of view. And so you go ahead and uh, tell them that, and uh, call it capitulation, call it what you want. I, am, I think I'm, it's just a testament to weakness, don't you? Well, no, I, I just tell you one thing. You want to put adverbs and adjectives, and you know what? You're entitled to do that. I am an analyst. I am telling you my point of view. You can throw it in the garbage. You can agree or disagree, but I will not. I do not agree with your assessment in the way you frame things. And I really think, unfortunately, unfortunately, the Palestinians have contributed in a very, very horrible way to their demise. It, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. And yes, the, uh, 
to use your word, the Arabs betrayed them, the Europeans betrayed them, the Americans that. betrayed them, the Russians betrayed them. Okay, but they also betrayed themselves, unfortunately. And, there is, and I even went as far as I, to tell you, from my point of view, okay, by the way, that division between uh, uh, the Palestinian leadership and Hamas, well, guess who's supporting whom? Hamas is being supported by, uh, you know, uh, no less than Turkey. Uh, and the, the, the project of the Muslim Brotherhood, if you are a supporter of that project, be my guest and you know, support it and just say, it's a good thing that Hamas challenged the leadership of the Palestinian Authority. That is your view in that case. It is not my view. My view is that Hamas contributed in a very bad way to the Palestinian cause, as we called it, which is not, uh, a cause is not a country. But, uh, and, and, and the division amongst, and, and, and the leadership of Fatah have gotten so involved with themselves that they put their own leadership above the, the, the aspiration of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian state. We are where we are. There is still a little bit of a rescuable uh, situation, possibly, hopefully, with the Palestinian state, uh, uh, not the one envisioned in the 67 borders, give and take, but you know, um, or maybe, or maybe things will just go bad and the Israelis will implode, the Palestinians will implode, who knows what happens in this part of it. This is a rough neighborhood, as you well know. But anyway, I don't see how Hamas or Iran or uh, Turkey have contributed positively to the Palestinians. I really don't see how. Yeah, I don't think we disagree on that. Go ahead, Karim. So, Rahada, to take you up on that last point about how uh, the two-state solution can potentially be salvaged, right? So, the, the uh, policy platform of the Democratic Party uh, mentions the two-state solution as an objective for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, President-elect Biden is known for his views, obviously valuing the strategic relationship between the United States and Israel, but also very critical of the issue of settlements and a believer in a negotiated solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And now, of course, we have the Abraham Accords. So we have not only Egypt and Jordan, but also now two other countries with direct diplomatic relations uh, with Israel, the UAE and, and Bahrain. Is there a moment or is there an opportunity for a renewed push to revive a diplomatic process towards a two-state solution? And also get, getting back to this problematic issue of the, of the Arab position, right? So again, let's be specific. Those countries who have now invested in a relationship with Israel, right? How can that relationship be leveraged for that objective of reviving a serious, viable, negotiated solution towards a, a two-state uh, solution? Um, look, I, I pray that the Biden administration will put uh, 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 the words of, pre of President, uh, uh, presumptive President or President-elect, however we're calling him, Biden, uh, to, to, uh, to, to implementation. Because we have covered so many, uh, elections and I read so many manifestations and when it came to power it was back to square one. Do you remember 
Secretary Kerry going back and forth like a hundred times, I don't know. Uh, but he, they, they did nothing. Obama came in and the first thing he told us, he's going to resolve the Palestinian issue. And we got very excited when well, he went uh, to, to Azhar even to speak about that. But of course he stopped in Turkey first because he decided that the Islam, uh, the, that in Turkey was the moderate Islam. Well, again, I'm very critical of that and I don't know how you feel about it, particularly because you're both Egyptians. I uh, would love that. <laughs> we don't feel good about it either, don't worry. <laughs> just, 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 just to say, you know, just, just that. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I want to tell you that I, uh, I think President Biden is not going to step away from a new fact that has been established, which is the Abrams Accords. I don't think any president of the United States does erase something that was done vis-a-vis -vis Israel, particularly when Israel has been a beneficiary of it as well. It's not, you know, it's not. Uh... So I wish them luck in, in making sure that the Israelis stop their settlements, that they stop their annexation, that they lean on the Israelis to absolutely do, commit uh, to this, not only the spirit, but the letter of uh, uh, not, not annexing the Palestinian lands in the West Bank and the Jordan Valley. And, you know, to, to, to see how on earth can we be as fair as reasonably possible, because we can't be fair enough to the Palestinians, really. They have paid a huge price. But, you know, if they want to correct the wrongs made, they, they know the roadmap. Look, that roadmap has been there. Remember, it was George W. Bush who put that resolution in the Security Council, I don't remember the number, but it was about the, the, the Palestinian state with, with a roadmap. I think that if my memory is not uh, failing me, I think it was the Republicans who have delivered more to, on the issue of Palestine than the Democrats. And I wish somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, because my memory could be failing me. But including what President Clinton did, including the parameters, because I once saw President Clinton, and he was speaking about what Taba accomplished and how Yasser Arafat was so wrong to refuse what was offered to him in Taba, in the negotiations in Taba. So we were at this conference, so I went to him, I said, President Clinton, why would you not say Arafat should have accepted what was offered to him in Camp David, which preceded Taba, if you remember. And he sort of laughed it off and he said, well, it's another story, I'll explain it to you later. That's because it wasn't offered anything in Camp David. Robert Malley, probably, who is a very prominent uh, Democrat, could tell you that story and a very distinguished one and, and an old friend of mine. He could tell you that story of what happened in Camp David. And then afterwards in Taba, yes, Arafat did not accept that. Yes, that is true. There was something offered to, and, and you know, Saeed uh, Barakat, uh, who just passed a couple of years ago, Allah uh, I remember him coming to Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum from Taba, and I remember him sitting on stage with his coat. Somebody should look at that with his uh, sort of uh, brown coat coming from Taba to, do, to, to tell us what was going on. And he was practically, you know, he thought he was coming with something and Arafat just, you know, knocked it out, uh, uh, whatever they were coming back with. You know why? Because he was betting on Sharon coming to power and he didn't want to give it to, what, what, who was that at that time, Barak? 
right? Paris, was it Paris? No, no, no. Uh, no. Barack, was it Barack? I think so. At any rate, he didn't want to, you know, give it to, uh, to, to someone who was losing the election. So there's a lot of politicking that has taken place. Yeah. I pray President Biden takes it very seriously and builds on these uh, accords, including cementing the non-annexation, no further annexation by Israel of Palestinian lands and giving the Palestinians their independent state and uh, and really, uh, you know, getting them out of their misery. They have suffered enough. Rada, we, we want to get to uh, uh, questions from our participants, but maybe a final question on Syria, uh, which you mentioned. So lo looking at Syria, it seems we are now entering uh, the post-conflict phase or, or close to that. And now there is increasing talk about how the political settlement for the Syrian civil war uh, should be structured. What, in your view, should the U.S. involvement be in that process, so the conflict resolution process uh, in Syria uh, moving forward? I know you've been very critical of U.S. policy towards Syria uh, in the past. If you could give us your perspective on what you would like to see in terms of Washington's approach uh, to this coming phase of the oh. Syrian well, let me say, first of all, I look at Syria uh, not as a clear, uh, clear win for Russia. I think it's st still a project of a quagmire for Russia. I think mm. the Russians are suffering that. And I think uh, it's, it's not done until it's done. Uh, Idlib, is not, is, Idlib is still an issue. I, mean, I know right now people, some people like to say that President Putin struck a deal with President uh, Rajab Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey and in Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan, and therefore that's going to be reflective on Idlib or the potential conflict of Syria. I don't buy it yet. That's so, I don't think the Astana process, which is Iran, Turkey, and Russia for Syria is uh, happening. Um, or as it used to be anyway, it's still there in, in form. I'm not so sure it's actively uh, executed. Uh, but so because that's, I mean, the reason for that is because uh, the, the Russians really failed in convincing President uh, Bashar al-Assad of the constitutional process and the elections and etc. So it has been failure after failure. Now, of course, the only thing they have stuck themselves into doing, that is to say not, uh, you know, not to let him lose because, because Putin gave his word to Assad that he's not going to give him a hang, to hang and dry in Idlib. Therefore, that conflict with Turkey, therefore, that conflict went to Libya. If you want to talk about Libya later, now, you know, they're talking about a potential uh, example of a conflict resolution Nagorno-Karabakh, which is not resolved yet because we don't know what the prime minister of Armenia is doing. Anyway, it's too complicated. So I think uh, uh, the U.S., look, the U.S. is uh, probably uh, doing exactly at least for the Trump administration, they're doing what they do, which is use sanctions as a tool. So they have the Caesars Act, as you know, and they are imposing sanctions, not only on the president, on his wife, probably on his son, I don't know. They, they are pressing so that he would cry uncle and he would uh, uh, accept what he needs to accept, which is to deliver on the constitutional process, uh, to, uh, to find a political settlement. I think uh, 
okay, you don't get upset, you, you know, but, but you're just going to say, Biden's people might go in uh, into the Syria uh, file with a bit of guilt because of what happened in uh, the Obama era. Some of them, not all of them, not, any, not every one of them is going to say mea culpa, but some of them felt very guilty. Some of them wrote about it. Some of them just were defined and said they have done the right thing. But if a combination of the above thinks about it and decides that they want to do something for Syria, we'll stick to the, uh, to the Caesars Act, which is, uh, by the way, I think it's an act that means it's the Congress. It's not only an administrative, it's not a decision by the administration. This is where the Biden people will get stuck a lot because there's been uh, congressional acts that are not easy to, uh, to undo. Huh? And, and put pressure, I mean, you know, talk, uh, yeah, talk to the Russians, maybe the Russians these days are not in the mood to entertain uh, uh, Iran like they wanted to, or maybe they are. Uh, talk to the Russians, I don't know, don't give it to, to, to Turkey. I mean, after all, Syria is de facto divided. This one took apart, this one took apart, this one is taken apart. And the American bases are there in, in, in a very lucrative area where the oil and gas is. Yeah, so I think that we may witness a new approach, but I think it's very important to keep the pressure on, otherwise, you lose, you lose, you know, keep your, keep your eye on, 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 on the eight ball. I mean, just make sure that, I'm sure I've said this wrong. I, I said it wrong, it doesn't matter. But don't lose sight of what's happening in Syria. What, how weak is Turkey or how strong is Turkey? How weak is Iran or how strong is Iran? How weak is Russia or how strong is Russia? And don't forget the Golan Heights and Israel, and again, you know, the, the, the ongoing. And do not overstate the strength of Bashar al-Assad. Be very, be, be real about it. Because if he, if the Russians pull that cover off him, or if uh, the Iranians uh, and Hezbollah leave him alone, uh, it's not going to be, he's not going to be sitting pretty. So, uh, Raghida, thank you. This has really been tremendous. We do want to open it up uh, to the audience for questions. So um, you can raise your hand using the participants uh, function. You just click the participants icon at the bottom of the screen, and then a pane will open up on the right-hand side, and you can raise your hand. While people are finding the raise hand button, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't just ask you a very uh, quick question. You are, of course, in one of the jewels of the Arab world, uh, Beirut, which uh, experienced a great tragedy in uh, August. And I I'd just love to ask you to just uh, give us a sense of how the city is recovering from that. And if we could tie it to the theme of our conversation today, one of the things I was, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised by was to see the French leader, uh, Emmanuel Macron, taking such a uh, an active role in in trying to um, uh, at least talk about some of Lebanon's internal issues. The United States has been completely absent from that conversation. Do you think there's a role for the Biden administration in that? I think you're wrong about the U.S. being absent from that conversation. Great. You're absolutely wrong because there's been several envoys, including uh, uh, David Schenker, who has come more than once, uh, a couple of times recently, uh, they, they have been very, the U.S. has been very involved in the negotiations uh, over, between Lebanon and Israel over the... No, but that's what I mean. I mean, that, that's different from the internal situation. No, 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 let me explain. Yeah. It's, it's not at all. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, the sanctions 
that the American administration, Trump administration imposed on figures in Lebanon, uh, important figures, has, uh, have, they, have been, they have been very impactful. And one of the impacts is that uh, the uh, Speaker of the Parliament, Nabil Barri, agreed to let us negotiate our demarcation, uh, with, what do you call it, the sea, in the sea. Uh, with Maritime uh, border. Maritime, thank you. The maritime uh, borders with Israel. So the Americans have been very involved, uh, again, through uh, the Trump administration's approach, which is, you know, sanction if they don't comply. So the issue here, and as you probably know, the, the last uh, uh, set of sanctions went against the former foreign minister of Lebanon, Gibran uh, Basile, uh, and that shocked a lot here in Lebanon, but it's been expected by others. And the, uh, what they're trying to say, the US administration, is that there are two issues here. One is corruption, which is absolutely uh, unbearable in this country. And secondly, uh, they want to weaken Hezbollah's grip on this country because Hezbollah has a major grip on this country. So what is, uh, they, they are not stepping out. You, say, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned that the, the French. So they're not leaving it to the French. Oh, go have a picnic, do it, and we'll see what happens. No, the French also committed, and Macron himself, when he was here, he committed that should his initiative fail, he too will go for the sanctions against those who are failing all these efforts, and probably he will try to bring the Europeans with him as well. So there is coordination. It is not an issue of, the, of, of, of an absence. So let me give, just take this opportunity because I'm glad that you asked me about Lebanon. I was uh, hoping you would. Uh, this country is really pretty much doomed if it, uh, if, if it stays on the course it is. The corruption of the whole political ruling class, all of them, uh, is, is, is beyond imagination. It, it is utter and it is shameful. And the greed has taken uh, a, new, a new dimension that it's, it's, un, it's unlike others. I, uh, I fancied myself saying on television the other day, and I liked it, uh, to all of them, is that, you know, you remember Escobar, the cartel of Escobar was, they thought they were beyond accountability and look what happened, what end they met, what end he met. So I'm praying that they would meet such an end because they have killed the very spirit of this country and they've killed this country. And I mean all of them. And if you see the extent of, of, of you know, this, this is, as thank you for saying, it's the jewel that has been right now so roughed up so roughed up. People have, uh, they don't even know what the, what the value of the lira. They don't know if they are coming or going. They have no jobs. We have migration flow out of the country. All our smart people are fleeing. Why? Because of this cartel running this country. And that's number one. And also because Hezbollah is not allowing this country to be normal. So we need not to have a normal country with sovereignty, where we have the army, all, the army's authority all over this country, not, not, not paramilitary forces, no matter what the cause is. I'm sorry if the idea is to have resistance for all the Arabs, as you like to say, to resist uh, the Israelis from our borders, well then come and do it and get it over with or go to the Golan Heights. 
we have played we have paid a huge price for where we are and it's not about that it's about the iranian project in the region iran wants hezbollah to take this position and that's why hezbollah does and uh, yes the uh, americans are, and the french are coordinating and yes, they are trying to see if there is, you know, look, I mean, we wanted the IMF to come and bail us out. Guess what happened? They didn't let it. They, they, they objected to the IMF conditions to come and bail us out. So we are going right into the hole, further and further into the hole. Our people are going to reach starvation and those bunch of, you know what, don't get it and won't get it unless, until they are driven out and they must be. Thank, thank you for that, uh, uh, So um, let, let's open it up for questions because uh, I think you've set, you've put so much on the table that I think our audience will really want to engage with. So the first uh, question I have is from uh, Dr. Gary Seymour, the director of the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. Go ahead, Gary. Thanks, Tarek. It's great to see you again, Ragada. Hello. Hello. And thank you for such a, a high-spirited presentation. <laughs> Did you expect anything else, Gary? I no, mean, you, no, you, you met know. my expectations. <laughs> so I want to go back to the question of um, the regional project that Iran is pursuing. Because yeah. I agree with you, the Biden team understands that if they want to revive some type of nuclear deal, it would go a lot easier with U.S. allies and partners of the region if they can show that they're having some success against Iran's efforts to establish a, present, a presence in Arab countries. So if you look at the landscape or the battlefield, there are four countries where Iran has a strong political presence and even military presence, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and Iraq. How would you rank in each of those four, where is Iran most vulnerable? Where is there most likely to be a successful effort by the US and its Arab partners in terms of containing and even rolling back Iran's influence? You talked about Syria, Lebanon, didn't talk about Iraq yet. You know, Iran is most vulnerable, Daddy, in uh, the relationship with the United States of America. This is the card. It isn't that you can weaken them in Syria or you can weaken them in uh, uh, Iraq or Lebanon, although you can, and I'll explain. But the most important element right now is what the Biden administration will tell Iran, whether it is in Iraq. Let's take Iraq as an example. Iraq has not been able to be normal country normalized it really hasn't i mean look i mean we, we there are forces american forces in iran in iraq i mean sorry and the the hash uh, shabi the mobilization force in iran the mobilization force uh, in iraq reports back to tehran and and they are very powerful and they are overthrowing many of the decisions of the government of Iraq, uh, uh, it's a great grand country that uh, that is under you know the influence of Iran big time still. So uh, now the Saudis, I think they were trying to see if they could come in and and sort of offset that total uh, impact of Iran inside of Iraq. I think Iraq is totally essential 
for the Biden administration to revisit, to take a look at it, to see how can we help Iraq. This is uh, really the bonanza for Iran. It has been. Lebanon is uh, important to Iran in as far as Hezbollah is concerned. Hezbollah is the most valuable card in the hands of Tehran for disruption, uh, for, 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 for activities. Uh, inside Lebanon, inside Syria, inside Iraq, inside the Gulf states, and inside, of course, Yemen. So uh, the valuable, it's a valuable card, the most valuable card. In Syria, uh, uh, again, uh, if truthfully, if it had not been for Iran and Hezbollah, I don't think Bashar al-Assad would have been sitting there. Uh, remember Qusayr? Who, 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 who put Bashar al-Assad, uh, who, who saved him from falling in Qusayr? It was Hezbollah. So, uh, so I think the most important thing a Biden administration could do is to really look at Iran left side and center, not only through the nuclear uh, uh, vision. You gotta look at Iran through the regional activities in order to even win a better deal on the nuclear. Look, I don't think we're gonna go back to the JCPOA, Gary, and just say, hey, it is as is. It's not gonna happen. There's too much that has taken place. So come back strong. And you've been already strengthened by a lot of sanctions uh, that have weakened Iran. Now, Iran, of course, is threatening. I'm going to go to China. I'm going to have a pact with China. But guess what? If Biden and China have a different conversation, I don't think China is going to come to say, hey, excuse me, I want to favor Iran over a better relationship with the United States. So let's be clear on that. I think it would be magnificent, and I, I think I'm repeating myself, and I think it is, uh, you know, my wishful thinking, and I hopefully, it's a policy that I will push, and I hope you'll push it with me, that the Biden team will put on the table the issue of uh, where Iran is in terms of its interventions, how well is it doing for itself and for the, the places where it's intervening, and what's this cost to the Iranian people inside of Iran? Great. Uh, Raghada, thank you for that answer. I want to just remind uh, our audience, if you do ask a question, uh, it will be recorded because we are recording this event. So uh, um, just please be uh, aware of that. I, I think we have time for a couple of more questions. So the next question I have is from uh, John Lamb. Go ahead, sir. Um, Good afternoon, and thank you again for a really terrific presentation. I just wanted to follow up on your comments about uh, about Lebanon. And um, as you know, the uh, President Macron has a special envoy there today and tomorrow, I think, um, I guess to sort of try to stir the fire a little bit. Um, two questions. Number one, do you think there was any formal um, coordination with the uh, sanctions imposed most recently on Japan Basile. Um, and do you think there's any real possibility um, uh, of a government um, that will be uh, a government d'omission, as it were, um, to actually be formed and for any real reforms um, to be made, considering that the people that appear to be, um, you know, with uh, Saad Hariri and, and the rest, sort of just the usual retreads. Uh, John, thanks for asking about Lebanon. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. 
I think, uh, and as far your first question about whether there was a formal, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, the, the administration told somebody in Paris that couple of days before, at least, that this is happening in a couple of days. And as far as the sanctions against Gibran Basile, I'm pretty certain of that. I don't have it as information, but I, I am, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident in what I'm saying. Because they, they are coordinating. It's not that the French are operating in a vacuum here. Uh, they, the Americans are saying, go for it. Do your best. Convince them to do the right thing. You know, deliver, have them deliver, but if not, you promise that you will also come along with the sanctions. So that is number one. Number two, uh, the Gibran Basile thing is not small, huh? it's, it's major. Guess, what? Guess who else is afraid of sanctions coming? And they are coming, I'm told. More sanctions are going to come. I don't have names and, uh, and I will not uh, volunteer any names. But I think anyone who thought of himself, because I should say himself, because we normally don't have women <laughs> uh, doing policy in this country, because they think they're better than us. Uh, so I think those who have thought they would get away with uh, what they call tasvia, which means, uh, help me out, John, here. What's the right word for it? Uh, you know, when they made an, an, an arrangement, this is what is an, an arrangement with Hezbollah. Any government that has been making the arrangement with Hezbollah or is planning to make an, an arrangement with Hezbollah is not going to be unnoticed by the administration, by the Trump administration from now till January. And so, you know, you know fasten your seatbelt. It may be people that you would think it's so unlikely. And they're very nervous. Nervous they are, I assure you. I don't think Hariri, Saad al-Hariri, I wrote very you know, scathing. Uh, well, my column is, you could find it on my social media, but in, in, the, in the national and in Arabic, you see it in Al-Nahar al-Arabi, but you could find it on LinkedIn, on all the social media. And I really was very critical of him to say, well, who gave you the right? to assign this uh, ministry to the, to, the Sun, to the Shia duel or that one for the, uh, the Christians. Who are you? Like, why do you think you are entitled to do that because you, would, you want to, re to become, or again, a prime minister? I don't think he's going to succeed. But I'm taking a big gamble by saying this outright. I don't think he's going to be able to form a government because Hezbollah will not allow him to form a government without them being the upper hand. Although they really want it. I mean, okay, Hezbollah and the Iranians are very nervous about what the Trump administration will do from now to January. So they might ease up a little bit. Huh? And I'm now re rethinking what I just said. They might ease up and they might just like uh, buy time and, 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 and in order not to go under the sword right away. Let's see if I'm right on this. I'm just thinking out loud now. But I think it's, it's a bit... Too late in certain cases, I think the sanctions are uh, in the Treasury Department against many Lebanese. And let me tell you, there are a lot of nervous men around. That's great. I mean, you're, you're breaking news right and left in this interview. Okay, we have time for one more question, and that will be from Dr. Lena Salman, a fellow Lebanese and uh, a postdoctoral fellow here at Harvard this year. Go ahead, Dr. Salman. Thank you, Tare. Thank you, Ravida, for a wonderful conversation. Um, so my question is also about Lebanon, and I wanted to ask you 
Do you think the Biden administration would support in any way the reconstruction of the port? Today marks the 100th day since the explosion, and it's as if nothing happened with this sort of government that we have. Do you think with, the, with these politicians in place, there will be any support for the reconstruction of the port? And my other question is, do you believe that the revolutionary movement that was underway in Lebanon, no matter how fragmented, still has a chance at survival, especially that um, the, the last week or so, um, uh, in the, our universities, our private universities, USG and AUB, are have are, are they're having they're organizing elections, and independent um, students are running for these elections. And we know like politics starts from these places also. Thank, Lena, thank you, Lena. Listen, uh, I I uh, I'm going to start with your second question, and then because I want to end up speaking about what Biden uh, could do for Lebanon. The revolutionary movement was, was it, it was breathtaking in the beginning, and then it was infiltrated. Infiltrated not only by the parties, organized parties, uh, who took the decision that they're going to oppress it, and, 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 and uh, you know, just, it, it was not supposed to succeed from their point of views. It's unfortunate that it was infiltrated by, um, by individuals whose tendencies uh, are either leftist or communist or what have you. So they all of a sudden change the whole focus uh, in, in, from, from the revolution for you know, bringing down the government's uh, grip uh, on uh, the country to uh, saying what, you know, to, to, to attacking private property, burning private property. They made it a, a revolution against the banks yeah, of course the banks and, and the central bank are part of the problem, but they, they're not, the revolution was not supposed to be against them in absolving the others, serving the, 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 the agenda of these uh, uh, parties that, that, that have ruled this country despite its people for so long. So I think it, faltered, it, it fumbled and it faltered, this revolution. Does it have a chance? It should, it must at one point, but it, they need to grow up. Everybody involved in it, grow up. You know, it's not, it's not a picnic. Revolutions are not a picnic. They cost, they cost lives. They need uh, uh, resilience. They need uh, persistence and they need a strategy. They don't even have a strategy. It's good that the Trump administration supported the revolution and declared its support to what the Lebanese people want. And I pray that the Biden administration does the same. And even if there is any guidance, fine. I mean, what is this accusation that you support the aspirations of people to say, we want to get rid of, 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 an, an, of a ruling elite that has deprived us of negotiating with the IMF, deprived us of having a, a decent living, deprived us of understanding where we are, and then, you know, I, the, being robbing us, robbing us, taking our money and, and out, robbing us, no less than that. So I hope that this happens. Now, to the port and the explosion of the port. Look, I am a direct victim of that explosion. I lived across the street from the Beirut port. I had my dream home uh, that I sort of, you know, I knitted my dream, you know, I spent, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, the diaspora, the Lebanese diaspora. I spent 40 years in the United States. I worked very hard. I came back to Cologne. I, I took an apartment that I loved and I started a life. And 
one, one day, those people who have uh, not let us know why they had nitrate uh, stored in, 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 in the midst of, an, in, of, of uh, a civilian area, one day that explosion came and an equivalent to an atomic bomb came into my home and devastated it. I do not have a home. So what I, well, I am strong and I'm grateful that I was not at home because had I been there or any the people who worked with me, my team uh, with the Beirut Institute, we would have not been, you would, we wouldn't be talking right now. I mean, it's like, I'm just telling you, if you walked in there, you would just say, gracious God, what happened? And it, it is that sort of suffering that the people in Marim Khair, in Jamaizi, in Ashrafi, in all this area, you have no idea how painful it is to walk through Every time I go to Beirut, because now I'm outside of Beirut, uh, every time I walk through, I swear to you, my heart bleeds, I feel pain in my stomach, I come back to where I am, I don't want to say where I am, but outside of Beirut, with, with pain in my stomach, and I get sick for a day or two, because it is so painful. The FBI, I put a note for myself to remember in answering you, the FBI has, uh, has I conducted, I think, uh, was one of the agencies that conducted an investigation. We have no idea what happened to this investigation by anyone. I don't know. We don't know. How is that a misery? And, and worse than that, the insurance, for example, that, you know, the insurance for the building for, for my apartment, they say, oh, we have to await the result of the investigation before we start to give you money to rebuild. So look at the vicious circle and how painful it is on every single level. So what do I wish President Biden would do? Keep the pressure. Do not let them get away with it. Hold their feet to the fire. Demand, demand that there will be an end to impunity. Demand that there is you know, no, no wheeling dealing because this whole country is now stopped at uh, the notion of what deal will there happen between President Biden and Iran so that we know how does it impact uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, then we might know what our future is, then we might understand we are bleeding badly. So my appeal to President Biden is to, uh, to take a look at us and to see if the policy by President Trump was useful, build on it. And I think it was because it awakened some of those uh, monsters here to the fact that they need to stop. And we need more of that. Ragada, thank you uh, very much. I, I think this is a, um, a sobering note on which to end a conversation that was, uh, to put it mildly, lively, informative, and extremely fun, I think, for all of us. Um, but you, you brought it home on a note that I think is appropriate for us to end on, which is to remember the, the suffering, the human suffering that results from some of the dynamics that we've been discussing. Karim, any last words before we release uh, Ms. Dirgham? Rahida, uh, uh, my sincere appreciation for your taking the time to be with us. I think you've given us a presentation 
that's not only full of your usual uh, insight, but I think it was a presentation that was uh, passionate as well as uh, compelling. Uh, so thank you. I thank you both and I, thank, and I thank your team with you and everyone who participated and listened to me. I know I'm a bit feisty, but uh, I guess you expected that. And I want to invite you to join the My E-Policy Circle for Beirut Institute Summit, which is meant to be held in Abu Dhabi. But of course, because of COVID-19, we are postponing till 2021. And we are uh, every Wednesday at uh, uh, 3 p.m. GMT. Uh, so please join us through uh, YouTube, through, I think, uh, Facebook. And uh, the conversation is global, it's geopolitical, it's interesting, and it's also fun. And I thank you so much for hosting me. I hope I, you know, did the right thing, uh, despite the fight I had, <laughs> the small little fight I had with, uh, uh, with Tarek. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Although I will, uh, you misstated my position, but that's why... I'm now obligating you to come back to Harvard when COVID is over so I that we continue this, this. I program. will come back to Harvard anytime. Take right. care. Thank you. You honor me. Thank, Thank you, Ravada. Thank you for listening. This has been Middle East Matters. I'm your host, Tarek Masood. Special thanks to Patrick and Daniel Lazor for music and to the incredible team at the Middle East Initiative, Julia Martin, Ava Weber, and Michaela Bennett. To stay abreast of new episodes, please subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other quality streaming services. See you next time.